Um, Revelation, we, we're probably going to be, uh, with the exception of taking a break maybe around Mother's Day, we're probably going to spend the next seven weeks in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, I don't want to combine any of the churches because there's so much to say about what Jesus said to each one of those churches. We're probably just going to take one church every week. But let me just lay a little bit of a foundation because this is the first part of this portion of the book of Revelation. Um, the, the title for the book is given in the first few words of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means apocalypse. Um, that is the Greek word, apocalypse. But the, but the meaning of the word apocalypse is unveiling. So what I want you to understand and what I want you to see throughout this whole book. There's a lot of future stuff going on here. Um, but there's also these first, these next two chapters are not, they're not future stuff, they're now stuff. Um, but when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, from beginning to end, this whole book is about Jesus. Now you can say, oh, it's about tribulation, it's about heaven, it's about this, it's about the Antichrist. All those things are, are, are mentioned in the book, the book teaches about all those things, but ultimately... John told us what the purpose of the book was from the very beginning. He said, this is the unveiling of Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. This is, this is about the Jesus who was, the Jesus who is, and the Jesus that will be. This is the unveiling of the fullness of Christ to us. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 gives you a very basic outline of the whole book of Revelation. He saw a vision in chapter 1. That is what is past. Revelation chapter um, 1 verse 19, he said, I want you to write the things which you have seen. That's the vision. When, when he wrote that down, that was past tense. Um, I want you to write the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then I want you to write the things which shall be hereafter. And that is chapter 4 through chapter 22. If you want to break that down, chapter 4 um, through 18 is tribulation. And chapter 19 is second coming. And chapter 20, 21, 22 is the eternal kingdom um, but the but the that vision that he gave him at the end of chapter one which is where we studied the last time um, he gave him a vision of Jesus where he is um, in heaven right now on his throne he gave us a vision of Jesus as he is a vision of where Jesus is and a an indication of what Jesus is doing right now and there are two things that he mentioned there that are that are pertinent to what we're going to study in these letters to the seven churches is that he said that right now Jesus is in the midst of his church. Because those seven golden candlesticks represented his church. And Jesus was in the midst of his church and he was holding um, those seven stars, which he said were the angels of the seven churches, in his right hand. So there is a glorious Jesus who is sitting upon the throne of glory right now who is also in the midst of his church and holding the messengers of his church in the right hand of his authority. And, and we'll see this in the letters, but what is he doing? What is he, he's standing in the midst of the church. He's communicating to his messengers. His, his messengers are communicating to his church what he would have them to communicate. And, and what we'll find in these letters is that he commends us for what we're doing well. He condemns us for what we're not doing right. He exhorts us to do better, and then he consoles us by offering us a reward when we do so. And you'll see that theme repeated throughout every one of these letters um, to the churches. Um, there are four common phrases that are found in every one of the letters, and I'm just going to mention these real quick before we read. 
you'll see these phrases mentioned in every letter to every one of the seven churches. The first phrase is, unto the angel of the church of right. And what that says to me is that Jesus has and always will communicate his word to his messengers and that word will pre be preserved and presented to his church. Um, uh, he has given his word. It is written down for us. And he has called us as messengers to deliver that word to his church. We have to be faithful to not only obey that word, but faithful to proclaim that word. He said, I know thy works. Now, um, we need to mention this because works has got a bad rap. We're not saved by our works. Let me, let me unequivocally state that. All right, We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith. You can't work enough good to work your way into heaven, period. But works are important, and you can't minimize the value of works when you understand how many times the Scripture points to our works as the evidence of our faith. Works are the evidence of the, of the, of the, the business of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God at work in our life. They bear witness of who we are. Uh, they bear witness of what we love or who we love and who we are serving. Our works are important. They are a testimony to who we are as Christians or who we are not behaving as, uh, the, as we should as Christians. The, the third phrase is, He that hath an ear, let him hear. So the word comes from the Lord to his messenger. God speaks, but we have a, we have a, a, um, a choice as to whether or not we listen to him or not. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe in the free will of man. And God is always speaking, but we always have a choice that we can hear it and heed it, or we can hear it and reject it. The choice is always ours whether or not we hear what the Lord is saying to His church. And then the last phrase that you'll see over and over is to Him that overcometh. And that is written specifically those to those who hear and who heed. They will overcome, and then they will receive the reward that, the reward that Christ promised um, in each of these letters. So the first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. I'm not going to lay a lot of background to this, but Paul spent several years there. Ephesus had an important place in the ministry of Paul. He spent an extended period of time there teaching them. Three, three years, I believe, three and a half years. Um, you can read all about that in the book of Acts, and you can see the letter that Paul actually wrote to the church at Ephesus. That is the book of Ephesians. Um, one of my favorite books in the New Testament where he talked about who we are in Christ and what that means for us in our lives, how we ought to live that out for him and for his glory. So, so Paul done wrote a letter to this church, and now John's writing another letter at the end of his life, at the end of the first century. Um, John probably also, if you look at the church history and look at some of his writings, John probably also either at one time pastored the church at Ephesus or was a faithful member in that church. Um, Timothy also spent some time there. Paul left him there to extend his ministry. So I said all that to say this. This church had a great start. You could not have asked, would you agree with me? <laughs> say amen if you do. You could not have asked for better teachers at the beginning of a church's ministry and through the church's ministry than the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and Timothy, who was the son of the faith. Now they had good preachers. They had good, sound, God-given, Holy Spirit-breathed doctrine promoted, preached in their midst over a long period of time. But by the end of the first century, which is when John wrote the book of Revelation and probably his epistles too, 
95 AD. This is, listen, this, there are some of the people, John being one of them, who had seen the resurrected Christ who are still alive. And even before the end of that first century, if, if you believe Christ was crucified around 33 AD, we got 60 years since the resurrection. And by the end of the first century, Ephesus has got some problems already going on in the midst. And namely the problem that Jesus identified, and we're going to dig more into it, is that they were losing their first love. They were losing their first love. So we're going to call the condition of the church at Ephesus living but not loving. They are the living but not loving church. Look at Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now I need to just pause and say that the angel of the church is the messenger of the church. Um, it is the pastor of the church, I believe. That, it is true that that word is used in other places um, to identify a heavenly messenger, a real angel. It's also used of John the Baptist, who was the messenger of the gospel, the one that presented Jesus. Um, the reason I don't believe this is talking about a heavenly angel, I believe it's talking about a man who is proclaiming the message in the church, um, the pastor of the church, the messenger of the church, is because there's no reason for John to write a physical letter to a heavenly messenger. It's that simple for me. Listen, the heavenly messengers, get their, they get their teachings right from the mouth of God himself. They do as he's instructed. So this letter is being written to hand to a pastor of a church. He said, I'm walking in the middle of my church, that is the golden candlesticks, and I'm delivering my word to the messenger of those churches to deliver to the people in those churches. Verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, that is endured, and has patient, uh, and has patience, and for my name's sake hath labored and hath not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, so, so when we look at these churches, I'm, I'm going to say this one time and I'm going to try not to harp on it. There is an actual church that existed that these letters are being handed to at that time, in that place. And there are probably more churches than that in Asia. But these were written specifically to seven churches, seven being number of completion and perfection. So they represent an actual physical congregation of people that these letters were going to. But listen, if Jesus wrote a letter to that church, that letter is applicable to any church that calls his name. And, and that any church at any time can be guilty of the things that were going on at the church at Ephesus. And, and even beyond that, it, th what, what has been written to the church applies also to every Christian. So what's going on in the church at Ephesus could be going on at the church at Zion Hill, or it could be going on in the individual life of any Christian who is a part of the Zion Hill church. 
Now, there's also another element of these churches that I, I find interesting, but I can't back it up and say emphatically that it's true. But there are some Bible scholars that believe these seven churches re- represent seven periods of church history um, and the purity of that church and the falling away of that church at different periods in history. And it is an interesting correlation, but I'm not going to push that a whole lot because I can't prove that. But I want you to notice, first of all, Jesus' commendation of that church. He said, he said, you are hard workers. You are patient people. You are intolerant of sin. You are intolerant of those that are, that are doing evil. You are intolerant of false teaching and intolerant of false teachers. He gave a whole list of things. that He said, you guys are doing a good job. I am commending you for the work that you are doing. Um, verse 6 says there's one other condom, uh, commendation that's mentioned in verse 6. And uh, he said, I, I, he bragged on them in this too. And I'm going to dig into this one a little bit. I don't need to say a whole lot about that. You work hard, you, you're patient, you endure, you're not giving up, you're not fainting. You may not be making a lot of headway, but you're hanging, you're hanging on, you're hanging in. Um, you don't like sin, you don't tolerate sinners. You, you, you recognize false teaching, you try those people that are teaching and you declare them to be not apostles and you reject their teaching and you reject them. But he said, there's this other thing that I love about you and that is that you hate what I hate. Verse 6, he said, you hate what I hate. And he specifically said that what he hated was the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Um, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but if you, if you look in chapter 2, verse 15, he mentioned the same group of, again. He said, you have people in your church um, that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So twice in these letters, Jesus mentioned this particular group of people that he said he hated their deeds and he hated their doctrines. And he said specifically to the church at Ephesus, I hate, I love the fact that you hate their deeds like I hate their deeds. To the church at, at, at Pergamos, he said, um, you have those in there that, that have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And he didn't say the church at Pergamos hated either the deeds or the doctrines. Now, I don't, I'm not going to spend a long time right here, but it's worth mentioning. It's, it's worth talking about for just a minute because you can see this so vividly in much of the professing church in this world today, especially in the church in America, especially in some of the large mainline denominations, this is happening right now as we speak. Now, let me say, some of this is extra-biblical material. But there are people, there are, there are Christian historians that wrote about the early church that are not recorded in the pages of Scripture. Um, Luke was the script. Luke was the historian that gave us scripture. He gave us the book, of, the Gospel of Luke, and the Book of Acts as historical chronicles of the early church, of Jesus' life and the early church. So he is the biblical historian. But there were Christian historians that did not give us a book in the Bible, and and and, and the early several of them. I'm not going to call them all by name. I don't even remember all their names. But most of the early church historians that you read behind associated the Nicolaitans with the deacon that was appointed in Acts chapter 6 verse 5 by the name of Nicholas. They bore the name of that deacon that was appointed who was a part of the church who apparently drifted off into apostasy and false teaching and false doctrine. Now, it's interesting that the Bible, that all the other deacons that were chosen were Jews. 
Nicholas was not a Jew. He was a proselyte, the Bible said, of Antioch. So Nicholas was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism, who had converted to Christianity. And apparently somewhere along the way got off track in his understanding and teachings and began to dabble in things that he shouldn't have been dabbling in and began to lead people astray. Now, it doesn't matter what you read. You can look this up yourself just as easily as I did. Google is pretty good. You have to kind of weed out some of the bad teaching on there. But if you find some reputable Bible scholars, you're going to hear nearly every the same person say the same thing. Whether or not it was started by Nicholas, that deacon, whether or not it was the rogue deacon that led them astray or not, this sect of people were known to be um, libertines in the fact that they, they, they did not restrained themselves in any way by the laws of God. They used the same thing that Jude wrote about, the same thing that Peter wrote about. They used the grace of God as an excuse or license to live in sin. So they were libertines. Another word that you'll see is antinomian, which means anti-law. Now, listen, the law can't save us, but just because we're saved don't mean that we're free from the keeping of the law. The law never saved any of us, but it did give us a pattern of how to live our life. Um, all those thou shalt nots are there for good reasons Um, for our good, for God's glory, for other man's good they're there um, to protect us they're there to to declare the glory and the holiness of God so an antinomian would be someone who viewed the law of God as an enemy, not a friend the law of God is not our enemy, the law of God is our friend if we understand that it's given to give us a straight and narrow path um, that we can walk on but there was a group within the church at Ephesus who were dabbling in idolatrous practices and immoral of sexuality. You read behind almost any Bible scholar, a reputable Bible scholar, and they'll all say the same thing. They were dabbling in idolatry and practicing sexual immorality. Now there's a temple there. Uh, Ephesus was a big city. There was a temple there to the goddess Diana. You can read all about Paul's interactions with them and about how people being converted there were, were costing the, the idol makers money. And so uh, apparently this group had just made peace with the idolatry. They were dabbling in some of the idolatrous practices which may have included eating meat within the idol, the idol temples themselves um, and dabbling in the sexually immoral practices of those heathen, and they said that they that they they believed it was all right because God had given them grace, and grace had set them free from the bondage of the law, so they could live their life any way they want to live. That's a pretty common theme um, of of apostasy that runs through um, the New Testament. So here's what Jesus. This is what I want you to get. Jesus's commendation for this church included all of those good things that they were doing there. But it also included the fact that you hate what I hate. And what do I hate? I hate people who profess to know me, but who continue to dabble in idolatry. I hate people who profess to know me. And maybe, I don't even know if I ought to rephrase that or not. (laughs) Because we've we've gone so far in a ditch on the other side that, that we can't hardly get out of it now. You say, preacher, Jesus don't hate anybody. Well, he said he hated the deeds. And by the way, I can give you some some other scriptures that talk about the wrath of God being poured out against the wicked. But he, 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 he commended this church for hating the fact that there were people that were a part of the church that were dabbling in idolatry and 
participating in sexual immorality. The word hate there, look it up yourself, it's misio. And you look at other places in the context that it's used, it literally means you detest it. You abhor it. He, it's not, a, you're not tolerating it, you're not accepting it, you're not celebrating it. You detest it like I detest it. And Jesus commended them for that. Now, I'm, I'm harping on this because I'm going to tell you, you know where my stand is at. You know where I'm going to stand. And you know that, that there are people in the church world that will come against where I stand and say, you're being hateful and intolerant and a bigot and a homophobe and every other ugly name they can call you. And, it, and it, it, listen, it's not just the LGBTQ community that will come after you. It's the sexually immoral community that exists within the church itself. But Jesus had this commendation that you are standing where I stand. You hate what I hate, and I commend you for that. For the deeds that you hate and for the doctrines that you hate that are coming from this group of people. Now, we may not call them Nicolaitans today, but the doctrine is the same. Dabble in idolatry. Use grace as a license to live a lawless life, and we identify ourselves with the deeds and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to share truth, and then we're going to move on because I don't want to get bogged down here. If you overlook the deeds long enough, the doctrines will take root. Y'all should amen right there, so I'm amen myself. When Jesus said something that was true, he said amen. Now, now I'm going to tell you something. There's a bunch of churches that got here over a long period of time. And they did it because they didn't want to offend anybody. They didn't want to take a stand. And, and it'll happen in your life. I'm telling you, it'll happen in your life if you don't watch it. When somebody in your family that you love and somebody in your family that, 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 that you don't want to hurt in any way starts getting off track and, and, and dabbling out idolatry and involving themselves in sexual immorality, if you ain't real careful, not only will you um, tolerate them, you'll accept them and you'll embrace them and you'll celebrate what they're doing and then, then what the, you'll see your own life make this turn because you don't hate the deed that the other person's being uh, engaged in then you will build yourself a doctrine that will make you feel more comfortable with that deed. You hear me? The, the, the United Methodist Church is literally coming apart at the seams right now. They're not the first denomination that fought that battle. There are several others that have already fallen um, where this doctrine has crept in and they've tried to pacify. I knew when that advertisement came out years ago, open minds, open hearts, open doors, um, that, they were, that they were opening the door and that they were coming out of the closet and that they were gonna, uh, either they were going to change their book of discipline or they were not going to adhere to it anymore. And that's where they are. Because the deeds became the doctrines. Because they tried to make people comfortable with their sin instead of confronting people with their sin. And when you let the deeds go on long enough, the doctrines will be a part of your understanding, a part of your belief system, a part of your church, and a part of your denomination. Jesus said you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The church at Pergamos must not have hated the deeds, so they let the doctrines grow in their midst. 
Now I can prove that scripturally. The Apostle Paul said in, in, the, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, it, the, Corinth was also a very wicked city with an idolatrous temple in the midst of it, of which sexual immorality was a big practice around that pagan temple. So Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that had a man that was, that was having sex with his father's wife. It was probably not his biological mother. It was probably a stepmom or a second wife or something. But, but, but it, was, it was an incestual relationship in the eyes of God. And God, God wrote to Paul and Paul spoke, or spoke to Paul and Paul wrote to these people, How dare you let this man continue to be a part of your church fellowship? In, in chapter... 5 verse 6 he said don't you know that your glorying in this is not good it's not good that you let this man freely walk about and identify himself with your church and with your ministry because a little leaven a little infection a little sin left unconfronted left unchecked left unrebuked will leaven the whole lump and so he went in a lot more detail about what they were supposed to do in that chapter and then he ended it in verse 13 which said that you don't have anything to do with that wicked person that you put them away. That's church discipline. If they won't get right with me, if they won't hear my word and respond to it, then they don't belong in that church. Now let me just stop right here and say this. I have never told anybody that they couldn't be a part of this. They could come and, and sit in this church and listen to the word of God being preached. And I won't. But if you're going to be a member of the church, if you're going to be a leader in the church, um, if, if, you, if you want to be involved in the fellowship of the church, what fellowship hath, hath the unfruitful works of darkness with works of light? None. Um, can you sit at the table of the Lord and the table of the devil at the same time? No. I welcome anybody to come here. I don't care what title they hang over their name right now. Anybody and everybody's welcome to come in that door and hear what thus saith the Lord is. But if you want to be a member, if you want to participate, if you want to lead, if you want to serve, if you want to be a part of it, then you need to live your life in accordance with the Word of God because if not, you bring shame and reproach to the cause of Christ and you cripple the testimony of the church. There's a standard that we have to uphold and Jesus commends churches who uphold the standard. And I want to tell you, I don't care if the whole blasted world condemns me for standing on what God said, I'm going to stand on it. Hate what I hate. Love what I love. That's our calling, to follow Christ. Sin is destructive. Why does God hate sin? Because it destroys everything that it touches. You want to know why families are being destroyed? Sin. You want to know why, why churches are being destroyed? Sin. You want to know why our nation is being destroyed? Sin. It destroys lives. It destroys marriages. It destroys homes. It destroys churches. It destroys countries, cultures. And what Jesus said is, if you will just hate what I hate, I'll commend you for that. Just stand. Be the light. Expose the darkness. I spent a long time there. But Ephesus is a great church. Work, determined, endurance, morality, truth, zeal. They were excelling in all of those areas. With their head and with their hands, they were being faithful to Christ. 
But, but, but listen to me. Do you know that with your head and your hands, a slave can be faithful to a master? An employee can be faithful to an employer with your head and with your hands. At the same time that you despise them in your heart. Or resent them in your heart. I've used this illustration a bunch of times. I remember when my daddy used to ask me to do something. I'd do it. And I knew how to do it because he expected me to do it a certain way. And I would do it like he told me to do it because if I didn't do it, I was going to get in trouble for it. So I'd do it and give it everything I had to do the best job that I could and resent my dad every step of the way. But now my dad can ask me to do anything and I break my neck trying to do it and love doing it because I realize all my dad has done for me. So when Jesus starts talking about this church, he commends them for all this stuff. You're knowing right. You know the right thing and you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it out of solely a sense of duty. Now, when you know the right thing and do the right thing, can I say this? It's always commendable. It is commendable, but it won't endure if you don't truly love the one that you're doing it for. And so that's where Jesus' only condemnation of this church comes into play. Now, several of the other churches had a lot of condemnations going on. But the only condemnation that Jesus had for this church at Ephesus was this. You left your first love. And, and, and I saw one translation. It was uh, like a paraphrased translation that basically rephrased that. And I agree with it. You don't love me like you used to. You just don't love me like you used to. Your love is growing cold. Your love is, your love is waning. Um, it reminded me of a passage in Jeremiah chapter 2. By the way, Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's writing to the Jewish nation that are guilty of the same thing that the church at Ephesus is guilty of. They were still having all their feasts. They were still giving their offerings. They were still having their solemn days of worship. They were still doing all of that. And Jer- Through the prophet Jeremiah, God essentially said, you can just stop all that. Because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far away from me. So in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, he said, This is what the Lord says to you. Uh, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago. How you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. The love of your espousal to me. You followed me like a young bride on the honeymoon. You went after me with all of your heart. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. You got a lot of good stuff going on. You know right in your head. You're doing right with your hands. But your heart's growing cold. Now I'm just going to illustrate that like this. Y'all know there are a lot of marriages that just exist. There ain't no real joy there. There ain't no contentment there. There's no zeal or desire for each other. They're just hanging on to be hanging on. They're just coexisting in the relationship. That's that's a miserable place to be. When you stay married just because it's a duty to be married. Now I'm going to tell you, I think all of us have those times in our marriages where where we just are doing our very best just to make it through. 
But you can't stay there. Even if you get married for 50 years, what, you, what will happen in your life is that you may be married legally, but you're just living in the same house without any kind of relationship with each other. And what will happen in that marriage is rather than you being joyful and contented and desiring to be with one another, you'll be resentful that you even live in the same house. And so here's what I want to say to you as a church. In a marriage, when love grows cold like that, it is both miserable and dangerous. Because when love grows cold, the temptation, the tempter rather, will be bold in his attack on you. When you get cold and indifferent against your spouse, the tempter will see an opportunity to be bold in his presentation of sin to you. And if you begin to yield in to that yield to that temptation what you'll see is that your love and affection that you used to have for your spouse will begin will begin to be directed to other things now put this in the context of of the church if a church's love for Christ begins to grow cold if a Christian's love for Christ begins to grow cold then we're going to empower sinful lust in our life We're going to empower pride in our life. The temptations are going to be harder to withstand. Our affections are going to be more and more misguided and we'll put them in another place rather than where they belong. Now you may be still coming to church. You may be still paying tithes. You, You may even still be doing some work of the ministry, but you'll be doing it resentfully. You'll be doing it with a sense of duty, not out of a sense of love. And I believe that our faith has to be rooted in relationship, not duty. Um, To be living for Christ because we love Christ. Which means we love Him not just with our head, not just with our hands, but with our heart. So how can you tell if your love is waning? I think first, one of the first signs for you will be if you begin to be resentful. Here's what will happen in the context of a church. You'll start being resentful towards other Christians. You'll start being resentful to the church. You'll start looking for an excuse or a way to get out or a reason to get out. All those are symptomatic of a a waning love for the Lord and a waning love for the Lord's people. Your your service, your your work, your attendance, your attention, if anything, will begin to be half-hearted because it's out of a sense of duty, not out of a sense of love. So just, we, I think we all at some, at some point in time just need to take an inventory of our life about our church attendance, about our involvement, about serving, about giving, about our devotional life, our prayer life, our witnessing, all of that. You can do all those things out of fear. Listen to me. You can do all those things out of fear. You can do all those things out of guilt. You can do all those things out of simply knowing that you have a duty to do those things because you're a Christian. But, but that is symptomatic of a love growing cold. When you do what you do because of what Christ has done for you, you do it out of love. If you don't do it out of love, it'll never thrive. If you don't do it out of love, you'll never be good at it. You might have the right no, you might have the right head for it, you might have the right hand for it, but if your heart ain't in it, there won't be any passion to it. 
And even if, it's, even if it survives, it won't thrive. And then you see Jesus' exhortation. Let me see if I can run through these. I've spent a lot longer on those first two than I, than I meant to. But Jesus' exhortation to them, which is basically a warning. He said two things. Remember, which is you need to recognize this problem. You need to recognize where the problem is at. It is that you're doing all the right things, but your heart ain't where it needs to be. You don't love me like you used to. And that shows up. And the second thing he said is to repent. So remember or recognize what the problem is and then repent, which means that you turn about and you go back to the solution. Now, the solution isn't to do more work. Especially to the church at Ephesus. They already got plenty of work going on. You got that? They got plenty of work going on. So the solution isn't to do more work. And I'll tell you something. Sometimes when we feel guilty and ashamed and fearful in church, that's all we do is we go back to work. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to attend more. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Now what you need to do is not more work. You need to do more worship. You need to get back at his feet. Y'all remember the story of Mary and Martha? I do a devotion every day in a group on on. Facebook called Sitting at His Feet. That comes from that story of Mary and Martha where Martha was busying herself about serving the Lord and Mary was sitting at His feet in worship. Martha said, Lord, you need to get on to her. I'm taking care of all these people in this house and she's sitting at your feet doing nothing and, and Jesus said, Martha, you busy. Ain't nothing wrong being busy. But Mary has chose something at this point in time in her life that is better than being busy. And that is to sit at my feet and worship. Because I'll tell you something, when you sit at his feet and worship, and then you stand on your feet, the work will be easy for you. I think Martha's already fallen into this waning love business because she's more, she's more concerned about the work than she is the worship. And I think what Jesus is telling Martha is, maybe you ought to sit here for a few. Now, now, now what's all, what, what is worship all about? Why do you love Jesus? Why, you, why do you love Jesus? Somebody tell me. Because he first loved me. And can I tell you when he loved you, you were unlovable? Can I tell you that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you? Can I tell you that when he was the furthest thing from your mind, you were the first thing on his? Can I tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing today? Still doing it and still doing it with joy and still doing it with passion and still doing it with contentment because I won't ever forget what he did for me, how he loved me, where he loved me, and how he has changed my life from that place. And so if I don't sit at his feet in worship, ministry can, became, can become a duty and a chore. And I can get resentful about it. But if I'll sit at his feet for a few moments and just reflect on this truth, that he loved me first, that he loved me enough to die for me, that he loves me enough to put up with me and my failures and my faults and my stumblings, and that he will never leave me or forsake me, but that he's with me always, even until the end. And when I sit there at his feet and fall in love with him again, the work is easy, and it is filled with joy, and it is filled with contentment, and it is filled with purpose. You you. Sit at his feet and worship to recenter yourself on this fact that you love him because he loved you first.
relationships flourish when the emphasis becomes on the person rather than on the performance. Can, can I tell you this morning that Jesus is always, he loves you because of who you are, not because of what you do. Because I'm going to tell you something, there's some days that none of us get it right. There are some days that all of us fail. Jesus loves us still. His focus is on you. Is the performance good? Absolutely. It makes us a better witness when we're doing the right thing. And it makes us an even better witness when we're doing the right thing for the right reason. Relationships flourish when the emphasis is more on the person than it is on the performance. When we worship Jesus, His person, first and foremost then that ministry and performance as a Christian just flows out of our life. It's just an extension of our love for Him. In my marriage, the value that I place on my wife and life with her in my life makes me want to be all that I can be as her husband. Do you hear me? See, I can get up every day. I know what the Bible says. I can I get up every day, put all my clothes in the clothes basket, wash all my dishes when they're done. <laughs> I, I could cross every T and dot every I. But if it's not because I value her as a, as a person, as an, an important part of my life, as somebody that I don't ever want to live my life without, then I'll resent her that I have to do all those things. And the same is true in our relationship with Christ. If you don't love him like you need to love him, like you ought to love him, because he loved you first and you value his place in your life, then all the good works that Jesus could commend us for, he would condemn us that we're doing them without the heart that we need. Which sets us up for the tempter. Which sets us up for failure. Then there's that or else factor that he gave us there. The exhortation is to remember and repent, but then there's that or else. If you don't remember and you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick from its place. I'm gonna be, I, I quit reading commentaries a long time ago because commentaries sometimes left me more confused and they gave me clarity because you could read one and say, that sounds good. You read another and say, that sounds good. And they'd be in complete conflict with one another. And so I just quit reading them because the Bible says I have the Holy Spirit within me. And as long as I know how to properly define the words, I think the Holy Spirit can lead me into the understanding that he needs me to have. At that particular time in my life, that understanding might change as I grow in grace and in knowledge, but at that particular time in my life, that's the way I need to understand it. So what does that mean? I'll remove your candlestick out of its place. Well, he's talking about a church, and by extension, he's talking about a Christian within that church. So maybe it means you'll lose your, you'll lose your influence. Or I'm in the midst of the church. I'm in the midst of the Christian's life. Maybe it's not that we lose our influence on him, but that he lets us go so that his influence is lost on us. 
And sometimes that may be just to let us reap the consequences of our faults and our failures and our sins for our correction, for our purification. The, the, the loss of our testimony, which is a big deal. When you lose your testimony before the eyes of the world, you almost never get it all back. A loss of fellowship. I can't imagine my life without Cindy in the midst of my life. But I'm gonna be. Let's be honest. There's sometimes we don't have good fellowship with each other, and when that happens, both of us are miserable. Our lives work better when we're revolving around each other. And your life will work better with Christ when you're revolving around Him and He's revolving around you when, when your life is centered on Him. I, I think the bottom line is this. If our love and affection is in other places, we're going to lose our intimacy with Christ. And His presence in our midst won't be known, won't be felt. Can we just agree that this is a warning? And, and here's, here's what I promise you. I ain't going to try to read more into this than that's there, but I also am not going to try to read less in it that's there. I ain't going to minimize it. I ain't going to maximize it. Because here's what I believe Jesus is doing. He's giving a clear warning to a church and a Christian that it's dangerous. To let your love grow cold. I don't think I do you any good by minimizing that. It is a serious and strong motivation to remember and repent. Now what if Jesus just said remember and repent and they wouldn't know or else. Y'all know, I know how I am. I need some negative consequences. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. My wife gave me an or else. In 1993, if I didn't do this, she was going to do this. And if I didn't straighten up and quit my drinking and quit my, the lifestyle I was living, she was gone. I needed that motivation. So, so God gives us in His Word warnings. We may not fully understand the warning, I don't know all that involves, and I'm not going to speculate too much about what that involves, but I'm telling you, if Jesus is in the middle of the candlesticks, if he's in the midst of the church and in the midst of the Christian, and he gives a warning that I'm going to remove you from, you're not going to be in my midst anymore. I'm going to remove the candlestick from where it is. That's a serious warning. That's a strong motivation to remember and repent. But the other, the other motivation, and this is my last point and I'm done, is, is that he doesn't just give us a warning, he gives us a promise. And I believe this is true all the way through the scriptures. And, and every time this is given to us, it's giving as a warning and a promise. Listen, hell is a warning, heaven is a promise. Death is a warning, life is a promise. A curse is a warning. A blessing is a promise. You find that all the way through scriptures. If you do this, you're going to get this. But if you do this, I'm going to give you this. 
It is always a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. If you hear and obey, if you do what I'm telling you to do, then you're going to get this rich reward. But if you don't, this is where you're headed. So he didn't just give us that, you better remember and repent or else I'm going to remove your candlestick. He gave us another motivation and that is in the promise itself. The consolation is this. If you will hear what I'm saying to you, if you have an, an ear to hear what I'm saying to you, you can overcome and I'll give to you. What does it mean to have an ear? It means that you have a spiritual ear, that you understand that he's speaking to us in spiritual terms. And it involves our spiritual life, which is our heart. He wants our heart and our mind, our soul, our strength. He wants us to fall in love with him again. It means that we have a sensitive ear, that we don't disregard that, that we don't refuse to hear it, but that we submit ourselves to it as the word of God. There's a reward for those who hear, believe, and obey. What the Spirit of God says through His Word. Now, the, 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 the converse of that is true too. If you hear but don't hear, if you hear but don't heed, if you, if you hear but don't obey, then you get the or else. But if you hear, believe, and obey, you overcome. So I believe those warnings are always there. They motivate us. And they, and they console us, they move us to remember and repent that we can receive the promise. Now, what did he say he'd give them? I'm going to give you the right to eat of the tree of life. Now, the tree of life's in heaven. Revelation chapter 21, 22 tells where the tree of life's at. It's offered to everybody who overcomes. And faith is the key to overcoming. That's the, what the Bible says. What's, what, who is he that overcometh the world but, but, but the one who lives by their faith? But understand me and hear me. Faith is not just head knowledge and hand work. It is not just having the right knowledge here and the right hand at work. It is the way that we love him. Faith is rooted in understanding that God loves us and in our reciprocating that love to him by trusting him enough to do what he says. Religious activities. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, I don't care whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. That don't mean anything. That don't accomplish anything. What matters is that you have faith that works by love. That you have faith that is manifested by your love. That, that your faith and the works thereof are flowing out of your love for me and your love for other people. So faith is rooted and grounded in our love for God. His love for us. I would just say if you don't have that, there's no reason to believe that Jesus is in the midst of your life. Nor is there any reason to believe that you'll have the right to eat from the tree of life. Because there's a if I give you this, there's also I won't give you this. If you don't hear and you don't heed. So, it's important to start well. If he, Ephesus started well, it's important to start well. But can I tell you this morning, it is just as important that you finish well. Living but not loving is never going to be enough. Living but not loving is never going to be enough. Our living has to flow out of our loving to make us the witnesses that he's called us to be.
and to give us the motivation that we need to do it in a way that brings him honor and glory. Let's stand together as our musicians come. Let me just ask you this question this morning. Are you going through the motions? I'm going to tell you, it's easy to go through the motions. It's, it's easy to get involved with your head and your hands, but leave your heart out of it. Some of y'all doing that in your marriage. Some of y'all doing that in your other relationships with other people. Some of you doing it in the church. It, you can do it with your head and your hands for a long time, but if your heart and in it is not going to endure, it's not going to last, you're going to fall away. When Jesus talked about hearing the word, he gave those parables of the souls. He talked about the people that heard it, but they didn't get, it didn't get, didn't get down into their heart. It didn't get to that place where it could bring forth fruit. He said the enemy stole some of it away. Some of it was on rocky ground. It didn't have any depth. It didn't have any roots. So when trials and tribulations came, it, it, was, it, was, it dried up and withered away. Then he said there were some that took root among thorns, and the thorns, the cares of this life, choked it out. I'm here to tell you this morning, you've got to hear the word of God with more than your head. You've got to do the word of God with more than your hands. Your heart's got to be in it, or it's never going to produce fruit for his glory. Are you in it? I wish I could communicate this to you in a way that's, that's, that's clear to you as it is to me. The nature of God is, God is holy, but the nature of God is also that God is love. So, so hear me just for the last few minutes of this service. The nature of God is to love and to be loved. And when God created us, that was his nature. To love us and to be loved by us. I also believe that's man's, that's our fundamental makeup. I believe every man has a universal desire, has at his heart, in his soul, a desire to love and to be loved by somebody else. And I think that's where the Christian faith is at. That, God, that we understand God's love for us. And that all that he did for us in his son and that we reciprocate that love. And when that happens, the plan and the purpose of God is fulfilled in our life. We, we re-enter a relationship with him through that love. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of God that's in us. So hear me out and I'm done. If, if God had just wanted people to serve him, you know what he'd have done? He'd have created robots. You understand that God could create a man that without giving him a free will? God could, and most of his creation does exactly what God says to do without any rebellion. Without it. But when God created man, he created man in his own image. If God had just wanted people to serve him with their head and with their hands, he'd have created a robot that he could have gave orders to and it to walk that way for the rest of their life. God gave man free will because it's impossible to love unless we can choose to love. And see, God didn't just want servants. God wants sons. God wants daughters. God wants a bride that he can love. Jesus wants a bride that he can lavish his love on and that she will return and submit herself to him in love. So our calling before we do anything else with our head or with our hands, is to love Him first and to love Him foremost and to love Him forever. Paul said, faith, hope, and charity are precious things. But the greatest 
is love, charity. The reason for that is one day we're not going to need any faith anymore because we're going to see Him face to face. We're not going to need hope anymore because our hope is going to be realized in Christ. But love will endure forever. Don't let your love grow cold. As we sing, do you need to come this morning? My hope is built on nothing less.